Revelation chapter 2, and this evening we will conclude our chapter in a message entitled, The Fourth of Seven, The Church of Thyatira. Let's begin by reading our text, and then we'll look at it together. Verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and your service, and patience, endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts, and I will give to each according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and the one who who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces and even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give it to him, uh, the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We come to this fourth church. Again, we come to a city. The city is the city of Thyatira, one of the smallest cities in Asia Minor in comparison to the ones we've looked at previously, Pergama, Smyrna, and Ephesus. And yet, this small city contains a church that gets the longest address out of all seven of the churches due to the fact of the sin in which they are committing before God. Many have come to know this church as the church that was corrupt. And if you look at works that were written in conjunction with this church, you will find Thyatira, the corrupt church. That is not inaccurate, but I believe that there is a word that is more suited to describe the sin of the church of Thyatira. It's a word that is evolving in definition in our time today. It is a word that all of you have heard numerous times and probably have been labeled in a negative way by those in the world concerning this aspect of our nature. And that is the word tolerant. The word tolerant has truly changed its definition in social usage today in the United States of America. It's happening right before our eyes. It is happening so fast that dictionaries haven't even caught up yet. 
For example, if you were to go to a dictionary and look up the word tolerant, this is what you would discover. Showing willingness to allow the existence of opinions or behaviors that one does not necessarily agree with. Now again, because of, our, uh, because of the evolution of the word, I want to read this definition to you again. To be tolerant means showing willingness to allow the existence of opinions or behaviors that one does not necessarily agree with. Now, how many of you believe today that our society is using that word according to that definition in most of its usage in our culture today? Good, I'm glad. I'm glad that you realize that that word tolerant has taken on a whole new meaning within the last five to six years. As one wrote very astutely, but very uh, commonly, uh, he wrote this, and I want to read this to you. But the tolerance of today is different. They have sort of refined it because really when people tell you to be tolerant today, in effect, they are telling you not only to accept something, but to approve of it and even validate it. They are saying you have no right to say that your version of truth is any better than anybody else's version of truth. And therefore, you should accept and embrace what they believe just as you embrace what you believe. And if you don't, you are intolerant. And I have found that the most intolerant people are the ones that talk the most about tolerance. They want us not only to agree with them and validate it for them, approve of it of them, and not question them concerning it. That is the evolution of tolerance that we discover that is taking place in our society over the last six years. It has become all too prevalent that the word tolerant is changing its definition quickly. This church should be labeled the tolerant church. In fact, if you look in your text, you will discover that one of the accusations that Jesus brings against them in verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman. I love that because that is exactly what is going on uh, in relation to our new definition. Not only do we need to uh, agree, and not only do we need to allow them to uh, disagree with us or us with them, but we have to validate and approve of what they are doing because what they are doing is no more important than what we are doing. It's no more wrong or right than what we are doing. And therefore, we should just tolerate everything. I tell you that in my personal opinion, that is the stepping stone onto anarchy and chaos. Think about it. If we cannot question things on the basis of being right or wrong uh, and judge them concerning any moral standard, then what limits or what prevents chaos from occurring or anarchy to occur? Think about that for a moment. This church, though they were doing some wonderful things, had tolerated this woman that they figuratively called Jezebel, one who calls herself a prophetess, and one who leads the servants of God into immorality and into sin. 
And this is what we are going to be looking at today. One wrote concerning this small church in Thyatira, he wrote this, The longest message was sent to the church in the smallest city. Thyatira was a military town as well as a commercial center where many trade guilds existed. Wherever guilds were found, idolatry and immorality followed. The two greatest enemies of the church were almost always present too. This small area contained a church that allowed a woman to come in and to corrupt the church and to bring the church into a state of sinful tolerance. Now, though people in the world would disagree with me when I say this, I think we as Christians have been some of the most tolerant people that there have been in this society. On a weekly basis, I talk to someone who has an opposing worldview compared to my own. And at the end of those conversations, I have never displayed intolerance. I've never displayed anything that would be interpreted as as anything but tolerance. And yet, that's not sufficient for our culture today. If I was truly an intolerant person, at the end of my conversation with one who does not agree with me, I'd slug them out. I would belittle them verbally. I would even seek to physically persecute them. That's intolerance. That's intolerance of others' faiths. What we see happening in the world today under the hands of uh, the individuals in ISIS, that's intolerance. Not what's going on here in the United States of America where we dare question someone else's beliefs, ideas, or opinions. That's not intolerance. Intolerance is when we bring physical harm to that person because they do not agree with us and we bring them into subjection due to that physical persecution. I don't know about you, but I don't know one Christian who has ever done that to anyone here in the United States of America in the 30 years that I have been a Christian. Do you? Do you know of anyone that has ever reacted in such a way to someone who opposes their Christian worldview? I have not. I've never met one. And that being said, again, we are labeled intolerant. This church became tolerant according to that new definition. Not only did they uh, agree with it, they approved of it, and they validated it and allowed the sin to occur amongst them. Jesus addresses this church in this small area of Thyatira, in a very distinct manner. In verse 18, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, whose eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It is very important that when we begin to look through these different churches and begin to try to understand and interpret what is being said, it's very important to get an understand of the culture and the history of that time. In Thyatira, though it was a small city, some of the largest buildings within any city of Asia Minor were temples to pagan gods. We have seen that in almost every single church up until this point, and we will going forward also. The two largest uh, buildings in Thyatira were, were just that. They were structures 
that were made to two Greek gods. One was Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, who was known as the sun god to the people of the region. In fact, it was the god Apollo that Caesar believed deified him. Now you remember that many of the Roman emperors uh, claimed to be a deity in and of themselves. They demanded that the people worship them as such. And they would often look to, to um, validate that uh, deification in some way. Well, in Thyatira, they had coins made. And this was a form of communication. Not only did it tell the community what Caesar was in power at that time. Remember what Jesus said about uh, taxes in the Gospels? He said, whose image was on it? And what did they say? Caesar's. And he said, give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. So every time a new emperor would come into power, they would make a coin after his likeness and it would, of course, indicate who was in power at that time. Well, it would always be the, you know, the profile of the Caesar on the front. And on the back, it would be some indication in how they came into power. Well, on the back of this particular coin was Caesar holding hands with Apollo, the sun god. And this was his claim to deification. Now, Jesus said, he is the son of God. He's not merely the sun god. He is the son of the God. Again, the individuals reading this at that time undoubtedly contextualize what was being said by the Lord through the lens of their circumstances. Secondly, the second god that was most prevalent there was Hephaestus, the goddess, the god Hephaestus. Hephaestus was a metalworking god. He was uh, seen and depicted as one who was hammering out a bronze helmet on an anvil with a hammer. Jesus says he is like those whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now this would have shown Christ's superiority over the pagan gods of Rome. This isn't the first time God has done something like this. There's another account in the scriptures where God did something very specifically to show himself superior to the pagan gods of that land. Can anybody remember what event that was? Clock is ticking. What's that? Well, no, that's when he knocked it over in the temple because the ark was placed in there. But there was another event, huge event in the Bible where God demonstrated his superiority and his power over the pagan gods through, what's that? No, not Elijah. Wow. Egypt. Absolutely. With the plagues, the 10 plagues were all targeted after the Egyptian gods to show that our God was superior. And now, since you participated, there will be a prize at the end of church. Uh, we will allow you to collect the garbage. Anyway, um, that being said, there are many different places where God showed his superiority. But here we find it clearly indicating that Jesus Christ was reminding his followers that he was superior to the gods of that time. 
the pagan gods, the ones that were created by man for the pleasure of man, for the worship of man, Jesus is saying, I am so far superior to anything like that. In fact, I know that he is paralleling this because in chapter 1 where he's drawing all of these identifying qualities of himself in the addresses to the seven churches, in chapter 1 he's addressed as the son of man. But here to Thyatira it's changed to the son of God, which is absolutely significant. He's showing that he is superior to these gods. And in doing so, this characteristic his eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze all symbolize that he is coming in the form of judgment. Bronze always represented sin being judged. Eyes of like a flame of fire were penetrating and able to seek out righteousness and divide it from sin. He is coming in that manner He is now imposing himself in that manner. As one wrote, he said this, the reference to his eyes being like blazing fire and the brilliant reflection of his feet emphasize the indignation and righteous judgment of Christ that was about to occur. In verse 19, he goes on then to say, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and your patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. From the outside, they looked like good, godly, caring, loving Christian people. He says very clearly that love, faith, service, and patience all were prevalent and prominent within their life. And they were only getting better in those areas for your latter works exceed the first. As they loved, they seek to serve. As they were faithful, that led to patience. And they were growing in those attributes. Great qualities. The problem here was not those great qualities. The problem now follows that they had become a tolerant church to the point of grave error. Ephesus was going through all the motions. They were weeding out false teachers. They were serving at a fervent pace. But what did they, have, what did they lose? Their love. They had love here, but they did not have doctrinal integrity. And as a result, Jesus says this in verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, (laughs) Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols." As Warren Worsby wrote, the believers in Thyatira were busy a lot. They were involved in sacrificial ministry for the sake of others. What's more, their works were increasing and characterized by faith, love, and patience. So the church was not guilty of mere religious activity, but they lacked doctrinal integrity. That's what we are going to see. 
We see here that a woman has become prominent within the church here in Thyatira. And since we need to redeem ourselves from the last question and answer period that we just had moments ago, can anybody tell me who the first woman mentioned from the city of Thyatira is? It's found in the book of Acts, and she was found by Paul the Apostle. Lydia. She was a wealthy woman. She was a merchant of purple fabric, and she was from Thyatira. Some believe, and you can consider this if you will, that of course, women played a prominent role within the church, and there's nothing wrong with that as long as it's biblically directed. But they allowed this woman, Jezebel, and this was not Lydia, and I'm not making that comparison. I'm not saying that's who this was. But there was a woman that John here calls Jezebel. Jesus calls her Jezebel. I don't believe that was actually her name because that name wasn't very prominent in the culture. It wasn't a good name to name your child. Uh, There's not a lot of Adolfs running around today, is there? Or Osama, you know. uh, There's there's not a lot of those people or little boys running around today because those names carry such incredible shadows with them. Jezebel was one of them. In in, in 1 Kings uh, 16 through 19, you'll discover the woman Jezebel who came and married Ahab. And as a result, she led the nation of Israel into great wicked spiritual adultery with pagan gods. And the nation became weak and crippled before them. And Elijah the prophet came and he rebuked them and stood against them. And the 400 or 850 prophets of Baal who she rose up and that she slaughtered the prophets of God except for the hundred that were hidden. It was a horrible story, an account in the Bible. It was one of those that had a name that was etched in the history and in the minds of every Jewish person that lived. And Jesus is now saying, you have one of those among you. She calls herself a prophetess. One who is supposedly speaking on my behalf in your midst. They were not challenging her. They were not qualifying what she was saying to be true or false. They tolerated it. Even if they didn't approve of it, they still felt it necessary to approve it for others and to validate it, etc. Meaning, your truth is your truth, my uh, my truth is my truth, and we all sing kumbaya in the end. There was no validation, there was no comparison to Scripture, there was no discernment exercise, they just tolerated this woman and she led them in the same type of sin as the other Jezebel immorality sexual immorality and eating food sacrificed to idols in Thyatira we have to be aware of the trade guilds that existed there Throughout all of the churches, you find that the culture that they were submersed within created pressure points at different places to convey or to compel, that's the word I'm looking for, Christians into into behaving in an ill-fated way. Meaning that they had the world around them. 
and the world was coming at them. And they had to resist the temptations of the world. They had to resist the pressures of the world to conform into the world's image rather than to conform into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, understanding these trade guilds is very important. It was a small city and it was inland. So they didn't have the um, means of economic uh, stimuli such as fishing and other productivity such as that. So you had to work amongst one of these trade guilds if you were going to be economically stable. So being a Christian, you were then confronted, do I participate in these trade guilds or not? And you may say, well, what's the problem with participating in the trade guilds? Again, remember what we read. Wherever these trade guilds were, uh, uh, idolatry and immorality followed. Okay? Because these trade guilds were often, often there to set the stage for pagan worship. And that's how they were economically um, uh, compensated. Think about it this way. Think if the only economy in your particular town was that of gambling, what would you do as a Christian? Would you work there? You had no other means of you know, working. There was no other jobs to be had. Everything had to do with gambling. It was legal in your city, and that's all you could do. All you could do is work at the one casino that was in the town. That's the only place you could work. There wasn't any other, there wasn't McDonald's, Chipotle, nothing. You had to work there. What would you do? What would you do? Right? Ethical question. Now you start thinking. You know, rubber hits the road. Now again, this is a secular job that has direct um, implications of violating the scriptures. These trade guilds were in the same thing. They were here to service the pagan deities of that city. Do you participate in them or not? Let me give you a little background. I like what David Gusick wrote. Because of the strong trade guilds in Thyatira, the sexual immorality and the eating of things sacrificed to idols was uh, probably connected with the mandatory social occasions of the guilds. Perhaps a Christian was invited to the monthly meeting of the Goldsmiths Guild and to the meeting that was held at the temple of Apollo, Jezebel would allow or encourage the men to go. Perhaps even using a pathetic, or pathetic, that's really what it was, but a prophetic word. And when the man went, he fell into immorality and idolatry. The draw of the guilds and their meetings were powerful. No merchant or trader could hope to prosper or to make money unless he was a member of his trade guild. Nonetheless, Christians were expected to stand in the face of this kind of pressure. One ancient Christian named Tertullian wrote about Christians who made their living in trades connected to pagan idolatry. A painter might fight work in pagan temples, or a sculptor might be hired to make a statue of a pagan god. They would justify this by saying, this is my living. I must live. Tertullian replied, must you live? Meaning, are you not willing to sacrifice that for your witness for Jesus Christ? It's an ethical dilemma that we don't face in our nation. 
but it's one that was a reality to them. Their whole livelihoods dependent on it. I am thoroughly convinced that many Christians today are so preoccupied maintaining their standard of living that they often have compromised their Christian integrity. Chew on that. Consider that. Are you doing anything to maintain your quality of life that contradicts the Scriptures? But because you don't want to sacrifice that standard of living that you have become accustomed to, you continue to compromise and to allow yourself to be corrupted in such a way. That's what was happening here. The pressure points were a reality. The pressure of these guilds were a reality that these Christians needed to face and to ask themselves at that question, would they or would they not? So there was a woman in the church who when she saw, apparently saw the conflict within these people, they don't want to do it, but they need to do it or they have to do it or they want to do it because they want to maintain a quality of life that they're accustomed to. She would say, that's okay. Thus says the Lord, go ahead and participate in such things. It's okay God said it was okay. And the church allowed it. And the church agreed with it. Now there were those in the body who did not agree with it and did not contaminate themselves and defy themselves in such a way. But there were those who did. There is an issue today that I think parallels this that many Christians need to consider. The issue is the church's reaction to the increased social acceptance of the homosexual and lesbian lifestyle. And today, now, homosexual and lesbian marriages. We know the Bible clearly states that homosexuality and lesbianism is a sin before God, and no Christian should practice such things. None. There is no ambiguity in that. Even though the world wants to tell you that there is, as they point to objections in using verses out of Leviticus, because that one verse that says that such a sin is an abomination unto God, they say, well, it's surrounded by other things. And it's, it's in the mist. It's, it's, it's submerged in the law of God. And there's many things that we don't do any longer. So why should we pay attention to that one amongst all that we have already dismissed socially. But they never come to the New Testament where Paul makes it abundantly clear in Romans and 1 Corinthians that such action is sin before God. In fact, in Romans 1, he clearly says that this is a sin that is provoking God to judgment of people. And yet they won't talk about that. Then we come to marriage which God instituted from the beginning, husband and wife, the two shall become one. And Paul then tells us that this is supposed to be a picture of God and us and and His relationship with us through Christ. And today we are now being told that because we don't, our society no longer believes that lesbianism or homosexuality is sin, therefore we've allowed gay marriage, And we have allowed the marriage to be redefined. 
And no longer is that illustration that God created able to be seen or found within a couple. We know that the Bible clearly renounces such things. It says these things should not occur. And yet we have church after church after church, leader after leader after leader that will stand behind an altar of God with a rainbow robe on her or on him stating alliance with this cause, saying that God said it's okay. Love can never be wrong. God made them that way. It is okay. Allowing people then who may be struggling with such things to full on go into those lifestyles rather than to say, no, God says not to do these things. And through the power of the spirit of God, self-control can be enacted. I think that's where we see it today. I think that's exactly what they were experiencing. And we see the unpopularity with coming up and saying, no, we believe in sexual ethics that the Bible has laid out between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, etc. But we are frowned upon. We are looked down upon. And the word that they call us is what? Intolerant. Exactly. Isn't it interesting? But this was a tolerant church. They allowed for it. And when people were convicted, a prophetess would stand up and say, go for it. Oh, wow. Look at how Jesus reacts. Verse 21. When it comes to the practice of sexual immorality, it could be literal. Obviously, sexual immorality was also a term that was used for spiritual Uh, immorality or idolatry when one would embrace a pagan god over god god would often call that uh, uh, fornication or sexual immorality foods eaten and sacrificed to idols and listen to what he says here in verse 21 as jezebel allows for these things and encourages them the church stands by and allows these things to occur i gave her time to repent That was his desire. But notice her reaction. But she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. She would not have it. Absolutely refuses to do it. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. What is Christ's reaction to such immorality? Judgment. But do not miss that moment of grace that was offered. I wanted, I desired her to repent. I gave her time to repent. But she what? She refused. No way. She wasn't going to do it. So often when a believer finds themselves living in sin and they 
don't appear to see God acting in a negative way, they often misinterpret that as either God doesn't care or He's even condoning their action. When in actuality, God is giving that person time to repent. He's giving grace in hopes that you would repent and see the error of your way. He's asking you to consider what you are doing even with one as grossly uh, involved in the church there in Thyatira, he gave time for her to repent. I find that to be incredible. I think that should be our heart attitude. If someone came here in a lifestyle that we would find objectionable, we give them time to repent. Give them time to hear the gospel. And to repent before we were to approach them. Many have gotten saved in this church because of that. Because I believe that's the way God works with us. But he won't wait too long. Eventually he'll intercede and begin to chasten those in whom he loves. In this case, he says, I will judge her by throwing her into a sickbed. I, I think that's fascinating. In the discussion of sexual immorality, her judgment will be, I will throw her onto a sickbed to show her that her bed is defiled by sin. To show her and to demonstrate that I disapprove of what she is doing. There are many who speculate what this sickbed actually is. I think it could simply be the image of affliction or it could be the literal sickness that Jesus will allow in the lives of Jezebel and her followers. That their actual sin that they entertain themselves with will bring about their own demise. But I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. I do not believe that this is referring to the great tribulation period spoken of in the book of Revelation found later. I believe that this great tribulation is targeted towards these individuals. Jesus is dealing with churches that literally existed at that time and he was about to judge. He was about to bring about the consequences of their sins and allow those consequences to have their effect upon them. This is a very difficult scenario where he even goes on that those who are her children I will kill. That's an interesting phrase. It could simply mean that he is talking or referring to those who found Christianity through the the witness of Jezebel, meaning that they felt, oh, Christianity is something that's a tolerating religion and allows for these other practices to occur in conjunction with Christ. Meaning that their whole premise of the Christian idea is based upon her witness. I think that's a fascinating consideration. But he is saying that I will kill, I'll destroy them. I'll bring them to nothing. But in verse 24 we find that there are some in the church of Thyatira who did not heed her teachings. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Again, 
there's always a remnant of faithful believers found at this time who love the Lord Jesus Christ and did not defile them in the ways of Jezebel. Undoubtedly willing to suffer the loss that they would incur by not pursuing her and not following after her. But he says to them here something very interesting. You have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. What does that mean? The deep things of Satan. Again, a lot of speculation, a lot of conjecture offered by many throughout the years. But remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths or the deep things of God. Christians in the early church were absolutely... um, What's the word I'm looking for? They couldn't believe that they had the Spirit of God living within them. And undoubtedly, through the early church writers, we discovered that many Christians often, often stated that they understood who God was, who Jesus is, etc., because the Spirit of God resided in them and the Spirit of God led them to know and to understand who Jesus and who God truly are and what he desires of them. It appears that those heretics like Jezebel said that it was the Spirit of God who led her to say that a true mature understanding of Christianity would allow for such a thing. Remember, even the Apostle Paul said, all things are lawful for me, right? Now, I don't know about you, but Satan is always using half-truths, isn't he? But what does Paul say after that? Though all things are lawful for me, all things are not profitable, and I will not be brought under the subjection of anything. Oh, left that part out, didn't you, Satan? So he's saying here, This revelation, this enlightenment that Jezebel appears to be offering the people, maybe even claiming it to be the deep things of God, allowing for such things to take place in the believer's life. You knew better. You didn't go there. You didn't go to the deep things of Satan. Satan always twisting the scriptures. That's how he approached Jesus, by twisting the words of Deuteronomy over and over and over again. These individuals did not listen to it. Let me give you an example. Do you know how many scholars are currently working and have produced books that completely explain the validity of homosexuality and lesbian from a biblical perspective? Do you know how many are coming out? There are new commentaries being released that will undoubtedly move in that direction for pastors and leaders to read in the future. They're already out. We're going to just get a more plethora of them as we go forward. The deep things of God. We understand things better now in our society. We're more enlightened today. and, And this enlightenment allows us now to reinterpret the Word of God in a social light. I was asked in a radio interview one time what I felt was the gravest concern Christians face today and churches face today. 
And I told the interviewer this, my greatest concern is what I called cultural contextualization. When people begin to reinterpret the Bible in the view of culture rather than in the view of hermeneutics and homiletics. When we move away from exegesis and our main tool becomes eisegesis, exegesis is reading from the scriptures, determining what it meant at that time in which it was written. Instead, we eisegesis the text and we read into the text what we want it to say. Couple that with the increased biblical literacy amongst Christians today and you can sell everything. I said, that's my greatest concern for the church going forward cultural contextualization. And that's exactly what we find happening. But they did not heed to these things. And he uses a very interesting phrase here, if, you, if, you, if phraseology interests you at all, in verse 24, and I do not lay any other burdens upon you. We have that written once before for us in Acts 15, 28 and 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Remember that the new church compiled of Christians and Gentiles was about to fracture. It was about to divide and split apart because the Jews and the Gentiles could just not agree. They just couldn't do it. And so the council in in Acts 15 comes up with this letter that they can return with Peter and be read and to solidify this new church of Jew and Gentiles together in one body. And look at what they say here. I think this is fascinating. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and, and from what has been strangled and from Sexual immorality. What are the two issues here? Sexual immorality and things eaten to idols. In the very first council letter ever written, it were those two things that were to be avoided at all costs for the unity of the body of Christ. That's no coincidence whatsoever. Satan is using the tactics that he finds the most effective to destroy the work of God. And that's what he's bringing about through Jezebel, this woman prophetess amongst them. So he says to them, verse 25, hold fast what, what you have until I come. And the one who conquers, or the word we're more familiar with is overcomes, and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And even as I myself have received authority from my father, And I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those in this church who would overcome, Jesus promises that place of ruling authority that will transpire in Revelation chapter 20, in the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, those believers found faithful in the body of Christ will one day rule with Christ during that millennial reign period of time. He then authenticates for us a true Christian. A true Christian will be one who perseveres on to the end. One who continues with Christ on to the end. Until I come. Now, we know that the second coming of the Lord is still something that we are waiting for. It is a term that is used in the Bible for a period of time, a longevity of time. 
those who persevere, those who continue on, those who overcome until I come. Each and every day as a believer in Jesus Christ, I live, I walk, I act, I breathe in the light of the return of Christ and his intimate return that could happen at any moment. That's what moves me, to move one more day, to continue one more day, even when everything in me is telling me to stop. Everything in me is is discouraged and wants to give up. It's because the Lord's returning, I keep going forward. That was the hope in which he is bringing about there. I'm coming. And when I do, you'll be so grateful that you were faithful until the end. And if their death were to occur before the Lord would return, they would have the guarantee that they would rule with him for eternity in the millennial kingdom. The words of verse 27 are taken from Psalm 2, and you can look those up for yourself. And then he says something interesting in verse 28. I will give him the morning star. There is undoubtedly no book in the Bible that has created more buzz and stir than the book of Revelation. And often when the book is taught, it is taught in the, under the umbrella of speculation and conjecture. Or it's hyped to the point where things become so you know, sensationalized that they lose all integrity of, of, of truly knowing what the scriptures mean. And again, when it comes to this morning star, most offer uh, conjecture, most offer uh, speculation into what it actually means. I think D.A. Carson offered a very interesting point for us to consider concerning this morning star. This morning star, he says, I will also give him the morning star, is less to be interpreted in terms of Revelation 22.16, when Jesus says that he is the great and uh, morning star. He's not saying here that I'm giving you myself. He is not referring to, I'm allowing you to be resurrected. That's what many have equated this morning star with, that he's giving himself to them or they'll be resurrected in the last days. Let me read on. Where Christ himself is the bright morning star, then the fact is that the morning star is Venus. Listen, let him, we'll continue. For the Romans, that star was a symbol of victory and sovereignty. Roman generals built temples in honor of Venus, and Caesar's armies had its sign inscribed on their standards. If that be in view, the promise strengthens the declaration in verses 26 and 27. The overcomer is doubtably assured of his participation with Christ in his triumphant rule. Meaning, if Venus was the sign or symbol of the God who allowed for authority and sovereignty, Jesus is saying, I am the morning star, and therefore I will give you the morning star, which will allow you to have that authority with me under my sovereignty in the millennial kingdom. I think that's the best of the answers that I have discovered for this. So, 
we will look at that and we will take that to heart when considering this morning star, knowing that Jesus Christ is the true and ultimate morning star. But again, remember verse 18. He was showing himself in contrast to the pagan gods of that time by the eyes of fire and the feet of bronze. Now he is saying, I'm going to give you the morning star as every Roman soldier was given that staff, that standard that carried the star of Venus upon it. He says, I am now giving it to you. Again, showing himself superior to the pagan gods of that time. I think going forward, we have a lot of decisions to make as Christians. I believe that our society is going to become more and more antagonistic towards Christianity as we continue. I truly believe that unless God moves in a miraculous way and a revival sweeps our nation, which I guess is always possible, the Bible clearly delineates, though, for me, that things are going to get worse before they ultimately get better. And I do believe things are going to become more antagonistic towards Christianity in our nation today. I think our government, I think our society wants to cease the progression of Christian education and training. I think that they are more worried about social integration, social assimilation, than they are about individual thinking. There is certainly an emphasis on collective thinking, apart from individual critical thinking. And as we move farther and closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we know that Satan is going to try ultimately to delude this world and to lie and to lead people away from Christ. But as I say that, I believe something is going to happen as a result of it that the Christians will be purified. And those who are truly His will begin to shine like lights in a dark place. Those who love Him and His Word. Those who are committed and devoted to Him under the wave of persecution and antagonism that this world may throw and thrust against us. These individuals will stand in the power of the Spirit of God. They will stand on the firm footing of the word of God and they will be lights and they'll be proclaiming the gospel and those who hear and respond will be saved. It's going to be an incredible time because there even amongst a church like this in Thyatira there were those who were obedient, wasn't there? Those who were going to overcome. Those who are going to reign with Christ. Those who are going to be the bright morning stars that have that authority in the millennial kingdom. There were going to be those, even in such darkness, there were going to be those who overcame. Just like us today. We need to ask ourselves some serious questions going forward. How much am I willing to sacrifice for my walk with Jesus Christ? Am I going to try to maintain a standard of living that is going to require me to compromise like the church of Pergama or to corrupt myself like the church of Thyatira? Is economic prosperity so important to me that I abandon my faith in Jesus Christ? Am I going to be swayed because the love of money is the root of all evil? 
All kinds of evil. Or am I going to stay true to Jesus Christ? Am I going to persevere? Am I going to continue on? Or am I going to be swept away in the wave of social pressure? These are the questions we face. That's why these churches are so important for us today. So relevant for us today. Maybe you have gotten into a conversation with a loved one or with a parent, daughter, spouse, friend, family, extended family, co-worker. And they've asked you your opinion about gay and lesbianism. And you've cited scripture and saying, I believe that it is a sin before God. And you have already felt that disapproval upon you. You felt that pressure. We are called homophobics because anyone who doesn't agree with society has a phobia today. Have you not learned that yet? We are homophobics because we do not agree with society on these things. You feel the pressure in a different way today, don't you? And there are some who are saying, well, all we need to do is elect new officials and turn this tide the other way. Oh, I hope that would be true. But I don't think it's going to be. I think it's going to increase and get more difficult as we go forward. Are we prepared for that? Are we prepared for that? Do we love the Lord enough not only to love one another as He has loved us, but to remain in doctrinal purity? These are questions that we have to ask ourselves going forward tonight. Again, let's read that last verse 29 together. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 